0: You can hear us around the world, streaming 24-7 at safetyfm.com. Streaming live from Taos, New Mexico. Here is Dr. Jay Allen on Safety FM. Broadcasting live from the Safety FM studios in Orlando, Florida. Here is your host, Dr. Jay Allen on Safety FM.
1: This episode of The Broadcast and The Podcast is brought to you by Safety Focus Moment. They're consultants that want to help you get the safety culture you've been looking for. For more information, go to safetyfocusmoment.com. Well, hello and welcome to Safety FM. This is Jay Allen. Well, thank you for listening to the podcast and the radio show over the last few weeks specifically the few last episodes dealing with How Did It All Start? The story of human and organizational performance, at least from the DOE point of view. Well, today I am not going to actually continue the conversation, but we're going to take some interesting twist. Today I had a great opportunity to sit down with Todd Conklin and discuss his career and his books. As you are aware, we recently have released Three out of his five books on Audible. So I thought it was a great time to have the discussion of how the journey went between book to book, the career, and everything Todd has done till this point. Now, you'll notice as you're listening to part of this interview, I did use part or segments of it for how did it all start, the interviews that we've been doing over the last few weeks. But before we get into the interview, let's have a brief discussion. People keep on asking when the roadshow is coming about and all that. We have posted on the website, safetyfm.com, the upcoming roadshow that is taking place on August 5th. It is taking place in Daytona Beach, Florida. Oh, yes, you did hear me correctly. That's Daytona Beach, Florida. I will be there with Sheldon Primus from the Safety Consultant Podcast. And we're doing more of a workshop that particular day. And then we're going to be doing some segments of the road show directly. So we'll go ahead and record podcast live right there. And we'll even stream directly onto the radio station. And that's safetyfm.com. We're always available at the Alexa skill, the iOS app, and the Google Play Store. And, of course, you can always stream us directly off of any internet browser that you have, of course. And then the other thing that has come up recently was there was a lot of requests for the Safety FM logo shirts. We have released them finally. So they're actually up. You can actually go to safetyfm.com, click on shirts, and we'll get you directly into the store. You can place your order right there for the shirts. Besides that, let's just get you directly ready for this episode with Dr. Todd Conklin. He's the first person to ever have a repeat interview on Safety FM. So let's call this episode Todd Conklin Comes Again. Here on safety fm
0: it begins in orlando florida and travels steadily to the west beaming across north america and planet earth and into your head the world of safety never stops and now the safety fm podcast and broadcast with dr jay allen
1: when we have this conversation is really go down the path of Right now, we're getting to the lines where you're doing your first book. And I guess the real reason why I wanted to have this conversation was, well, we've been looking at all of your books across the board. So I want to go back and have the thought process on when you're doing them and then other things that are going on in your life at the same time. So it's a a trip down memory lane. Mm -hmm. Okay. So give or take right here, 2004, you decided to write Simple Revolutionary Acts. And we're talking June is what I can find unless you tell me otherwise. The purpose at the time, what were you thinking about, do, about doing that you decided to move forward with this?
0: So that was really interesting because I was working with Coca Cola and uh, I was working full time at Los Alamos. And then because Los Alamos is operated by the University of California, uh, you could do this thing called a 701 form, which was a permission to do outside work. You know, it was a conflict of interest form, which those of people that listen to the podcast who'd worked in any kind of government job. Totally know what that's about, and so I was doing this work with Coca-Cola and We were working on reliability. We were really working on um, reliability from the safety and security side. And the, the director, so the guy, the guy name was uh, his name was Bill McGrath, really good guy. Um, and he said, "You ought to write a book." And he said, "If you write a book, we'd be interested in, in a, you know, we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll buy some." So I, I thought, well, I wonder what I should write a book about. Because at the time, I mean, this is kind of pre the new view stuff a little bit. And we're really just starting to dance around this notion of reliability um, connected with psychological safety, connected with um, the culture of the organization. So I looked at a book and thought, well, well, it strikes me that what we're really wanting to do is at the time... I was thinking revolutionize the workplace, but now if I had to do it, I'd probably say disrupt the workplace, but it, revolutionary acts is really based upon this notion of disruption, but it was kind of before the word disruption became um, a, a popular term to talk about it. And I had spent a bunch of time working with Edgar shine on culture stuff. Cause he's kind of the dude for culture show stuff. And he sort of led me to thinking about maybe writing the book so kind of one page uh, represented a a small revolutionary act you could do in the workplace that could happen at any level. It could happen at a leadership level. It could happen at the worker level. And it was relatively effective. It was kind of a fun book to write.
1: Now, at this particular time in your life, are you already doing the stuff with DOE? Are you already working on that program or not yet?
0: So we're not we're not we haven't started it yet in the DOE it's still a little before that but it's it's coming really soon so it's going to be right around the corner pretty soon but uh, at that point in time we're we're still working with we're just starting to figure out that culture and a more holistic view has impact on really reliable performance so we're really, we're looking a lot at safety and a lot of security but in the DOE Safety and security are kind of similar. I mean, they're, they're not, but but they're sort of managed kind of the same way. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's been an interesting journey because initially we managed both safety and security with programs directed at the worker. And that simple revolutionary acts book is really the first time when we started looking away from the worker being the problem to maybe the worker being the solution.
1: So do you look back now and kind of realize that this is kind of like groundwork if you were looking full scheme on really getting into human and organizational performance as you're moving forward?
0: Yeah, totally. And it's funny, too, because because since you encouraged me to read that book on Audible, um, I was really surprised at how well that book held up over 15 years or 16 years, however old it's pretty old. Um, And I really, really see this as kind of some of the initial groundwork to begin to sort of prepare the soil, to begin the organization in a conversation that's more um, holistic, more systems-based in nature. And it's funny, I don't think, at least I can only speak for myself, I don't think I would have been as prepared to move in the direction I moved around the safety stuff had I not spent some time thinking about the disruptive stuff that simple revolutionary acts kind of represented.
1: Well the funny part is that as I listened to the book and really have read the book, it's interesting because it almost seems like it is groundwork that was built for the purpose of that. So hearing you say that there wasn't, it's it's amazing to hear because I, I it all
0: seems strategic. It's all just serendipity. I mean but I but I think that's how change happens, right? It happens on kind of that arc. There's sort of an arc of change uh, or there's a maturity model or maturity, some, some, you know, it kind of moves. And I think, I think Coca-Cola made me think, cause Coca-Cola probably thought about it first and said, you know, what you talk about with our people is really more of a holistic approach. You ought to write a book about it. And then I wrote a book about it, which made me think more about a holistic approach. And it made me think more about really the difference between free agency, the belief that workers Um, have free agencies that workers are are in command and control of their own actions and and the belief that workers are actually part of a larger uh, cultural environment. And if we want to change the worker, we don't ask the worker to be different. We change the cultural environment. So we do these disruptive acts. We take them to a movie or we serve ice cream at a boring meeting or you know, we buy somebody lunch, this kind of little disruptive actions that really, now that I'm older, I don't know if I'm wiser, but I'm older. I see those now as really important to setting the stage for the change. Well, I think that there are huge factors in there. So let's look a
1: year ahead now down the road. And you don't have a book, quote unquote, per se, that comes out at the time, but July of 2005. I have access to the first lesson plan of Human Performance Fundamental Course. What's the feeling there? What are you looking at as you're going down that particular path? I know it's not a part of your book collection, but still, it's, it's an important document to your career.
0: You find that <laughs> That's funny. Does it still, is it, are still the same slides? That's the big question. Uh, yes, they are. <laughs> Believe me, I've,
1: I've done my research for this bad boy.
0: <laughs> I, that would be the same, maybe. I mean, so, so, okay, July 2005, that's when we started working with IMPO. And, uh, and that's when Shane and I would have initially probably started hanging out. And we started looking at the IMPO program, which was really, um, really quite extensive tony mashara had done a ton a ton of work and was quite extensive and we started to apply it um with the rigor of a nuke facility to kind of a non-nuke facility even though that's i mean it's kind of not not and non, non There's has a lot of negatives there but <laughs> we started we started applying it in a in a in a much more uh Well, not sort of non utility application. And, and it's funny because those initial slides, it'd be interesting to look at those because at that time we would have been really fixated on error, on human error. Mm -hmm. And probably most of the conversation would have been around identifying error likely situations and putting tools in the system to reduce human error, which we now know is kind of was a little bit of a fool's errand, but I think that was really important developmentally to starting the way we thought about human performance. Because you really have to kind of start with understanding error, which then leads you to blame. And then once you really dig into blame and you start looking at the fundamental attribution bias and, and the things that sort of exist around blame, then that takes you back to error kind of for a second visit. But it'd be interesting to see those slides. What do you think about those slides? Well, I thought they were pretty interesting, especially number
1: one, the way that I was able to get a hold of them. And number two, if you look at those original slides, I mean, there's been some changes throughout the years for sure. But when you first see it, it references you and Shane and it doesn't speak about the other people that are on there. And I thought that that was interesting and not, not you know, just serving up to you and Shane per se, but looking at the different aspects on how it was built out and then yeah. the amount of people that are there in the, the lesson plans have been the thing that's gotten me pretty excited on some of just the, the foundational pieces on how they were supposed to be taught out, the length of the lessons, and so on. So it's just really yeah, we
0: were pretty good. Mm-hmm. We were pretty good at, at uh, putting all that stuff out in the public. So I would imagine those lesson plans, those, uh, the initial student guide. Did you get a copy of that? I'll have to double check for the student guide because I didn't go digging for that because I thought the handbook was it. The student guide we put together at Los Alamos, which would have been pre-Handbook, okay. um, it was really good. It was really, really, really good. And I had that written. Um, I had a team of grad students for a summer. And and so I ran them through all the, the HP stuff we had and made them sit through a bunch of classes. And then I said, you know, what we want is a student guide. And the student guide, we, we decided we didn't want to give copies of the slides out just because that's kind of. I don't know. Back in the day, that would be one more three-ring binder full of slides that you would never touch again. Right. So we spiral bound a student guide that supported the class, but it was really interesting in that it never had not even one copy of a slide in it. But every slide we showed was supported then by narrative, by actually research-based cited academic narrative. To support all those slides, which is something you need at a place like Los Alamos or Livermore or Berkeley or Savannah River, the places where we would go and train because our audiences were all, you know, for the most part, PhD research scientists and, and they don't really, uh, they, they kind of know when you're making crap up. So you need to be able to cite stuff academically. Now, that, that was really fun. That, that student guide, if you don't have a copy of it, I bet you I have one. I saved some. Okay, it, well, they were really nice. They were really well done.
1: I would love to get a copy if you do have a copy. Yeah, of it. I, I bet I do. Now, the uh, the other thing that I notice here is you have this DOE document, but all of a sudden in your book writing career, you don't have anything come out for another seven years, per se. Now, yeah, are, there, yeah. rev- are there revisions going on during the seven-year period to the DOE stuff?
0: No, not so much. So pre the DOE document was the Info document, and you should see a lot of similarities between the IMPO handbooks if you have access to those. But the, the, the Info handbooks and the DOE handbooks are, are are they're definitely cousins of one another. The other thing that happened between the impo handbook and the DOE handbook was that Decker's first book, the Black and Red. Um, probably a hundred page or it wouldn't very maybe a 110 page long book uh, field guide, the human error the field, the field guide to understanding human error, I think is the name, his, which would be the, the first version of that, that book came out and that book rocked the world, but hardly anybody read it. It was really funny when it came out, everybody acted like they read it, but you could totally tell who hadn't read it. And so, when you find people that hadn't read it, you'd kind of bust their chops and make them read it. And then they'd come back and say, God, that's a really – re-. that, I think, is – I mean, I can I can say this, I think, without making uh, Sydney too angry at me. That book was really powerful. It was his first one, and that really colored a lot of the DOE handbook – not so much the tool, not, not volume two, the tools, but certainly volume one, the one that Lamar put together with everybody's help um, on sort of the, the foundations, the concepts. That book was, I can't, I can't underestimate how important that first book was. Now, do
1: you feel that that was like an assisted guide to the DOE and, and post stuff at the time then? Is that how
0: you're looking at this? I think it would be more foundational. I think what it did was changed the way um, that and and Jim reason's books as well, but that changed the way that Shane and I, and to a great extent Earl, and and, uh, gosh, there was a, a cast of characters there that did that. It changed the way we taught the class, which then in turn changed the way the handbook was written, which that's when it starts to move a little bit away from the info book. Remember the info book was written pretty early And it was really, it was a philosophical as well, very well done. Tony did an amazing job, but it was written kind of under the old view, which was the idea that you would manage human error. And the the Decker book helped us understand that that whole idea of managing error is really seductive, but it's not very practical. And that's when we started really looking more, even more so at kind of a systems approach.
1: So do you feel that he was using the info information to be kind of some of the foundational stuff moving forward for what he was doing research wise for his book? Who's he? Decker? Decker. Yeah, sorry about that. No,
0: I don't think so. I'm going to have to ask him that question. But my guess is he didn't. He probably did not have access to the info book because at the time, info was really, really, really tight with who got their book. You had to be a member of the info um, and you had to be a dues paying member of Impo to have access to their material. And so I would imagine he did not have access to that book. I would actually tell you if it's a chicken and egg conversation, it, it probably started with reason stuff. Then some of Decker stuff, then the Impo handbook, then Decker's book would have come out. They would have been written kind of in parallel and then Decker's book. Uh, and, and all that stuff kind of leads to, the DOE handbook, which we knew we were going to write and we knew it was going to be available publicly. I mean, everybody knew that, but nobody, I mean, Jay, nobody imagined in a million billion years that anyone would ever read the the DOE handbook. (laughs) Especially as
1: popular as they are now. Yeah,
0: in a million billion years. I mean, I just, I kind of thought we were putting together a handbook just for us. I knew it would be available. I mean, that, that's fine because it's taxpayer money. Um, so I didn't have any problem with that, but I never imagined any, any other industry or any other organization, would ever look at it. I mean, you, you just don't think about that, but that's kind of what's been interesting about this journey is that um, it's been really a journey of self-discovery or, or well, self-discovery <laughs> is accurate, but I would say it's been a journey of each organization discovering about itself And we never thought about this having um, legs outside of our own companies, our own organizations. I mean, I just, it'd be interesting to see what Shane said, but I'll bet you Shane said the same thing. It just, you never ever thought anybody other than our little laboratories would care about this stuff. And we'll be back right after this on
1: Safety FM. It is no secret that most successful organization and professionals are data-driven. As the volume of data that businesses have access to increases, they need more efficient ways to turn the data into actionable insight. Fortunately, iDashboard offers a comprehensive business intelligence solutions to help you with data aggregation, preparation, analysis, visualization, and reporting. With the iDashboard's data hub, you can blend data from multiple sources to get a comprehensive view of related data. Then the intuitive dashboard builder gives anyone the freedom to create and design dashboards and no programming experience is required. It's no wonder why companies like Lockheed Martin, Michigan Humane Society, and Navy Federal Credit Union trust iDashboards to provide them with the data they need to make the most informed decision for their business. Be sure to visit iDashboards.com forward slash safety to learn more. That's iDashboard.com forward slash safety make sure that you tell them that Jay Allen sent you. And we're back with more here on Safety FM. Well, it seems like it's been an interesting past, though so let's kind of continue down the road here. So all of a sudden now we're, we're in 2012, October, give or take, and the pre-accident investigation, an introduction to organizational safety, you decide to release it. What is, right. the, th- what is the thought process before you get to this book? So why did you decide to go with this? Um, especially because already at this point, you're, you're already teaching the DOE stuff. You've already done the other book, give or take seven years ago. So why all of a sudden do this introduction?
0: Uh, so this guy named Guy Loft, who worked for Ashgate Publishing in London, and Guy Loft was kind of their aviation safety and reliability editor. He contacted me and said, somebody told him, some, some, I put quotes in the air when I said, somebody told him to contact me to put together a book. He's, he thought there might be a market for a book that was written for the practitioner, not for an academic. And he asked that the book be written with no academic language, no long citations, no footnotes, and be written more like a conference speech and less like a textbook. And I said, really? Um, And you're picking me? And he said, yeah, um, you're the person that we think can put this book together. Now, my guess is, speaking completely out of school, is that Decker probably told Guyloff about me. And I asked Sidney Decker that, and he was really cagey and didn't answer the question, which totally makes me think I'm right. But what I did then with pre-accident investigation was basically write the fundamentals class down Um, and then put in case studies and put in some additional kind of information to reinforce some of the parts of the fundamentals class. But it wasn't a terribly difficult book to put together because... I'd been teaching all that fundamental stuff for a bunch of years by now. And over time, and now we've got, you know, Decker's book, 10 Questions, Reasons, got Maintenance, Managing Maintenance Air. Um, I'm trying to think if if uh, Eric Hallnagel, um, we're starting to read Eric Hallnagel, but we're reading mostly academic papers from him. There's not really a book out at that point that at least we had access to on Hallnagel. And we're starting to read... Um, a lot of, um, what's his name, Languishi, the guy that writes for Vanity Fair.
1: You know, I'm going to pronounce it wrong. So
0: continue. Me <laughs> too. But we're starting to read him and we're starting to put together, now we're starting to, in a, in a really kind of an applied way, putting together some of these theories. And we've got enough practice behind us. At least I should speak for me. I've got enough practice behind us because, you know, now we're rolling the program and it's running. And so we're doing. Um, much more uh, system-centric investigations. We're starting to really look at learning. Los Alamos, you know, was really the first place to roll out the safety learning teams. We made up the. I can tell you where I was standing when we made up the name learning team, which is not a name I would have picked, but it's certainly a name that stuck. <laughs> it definitely so we, had, we, had a lot of, we had a lot of practice behind it, and so that book was really pretty fun to write. And the thing that I think, think made that book successful. Um, was whoever the editor was for that book at Ashgate was also the editor for Decker's books and for Reason's books. So the editor was kind of, in a way, smarter than all of us because that editor had really the sort of collective knowledge of all the Ashgate publications that were coming out around uh, really this, this new view, we used to call it, the new view of safety or, or human performance. So as you look back now, and you said that it wasn't a
1: difficult thing to write. What are you thinking timeline that it took you to write the thing?
0: Uh, honestly, probably, uh, maybe a month. Okay. No, and, and it's interesting but, because they still, they still, still, still I'm, they still I'm, sell the I'm, book I'm on driven with completion need. So when I start a project, I really, it's very important for me to complete a project.
1: No, because it's interesting because it's still available online. And this is one of your only books that's available in
0: hardcover. Right. But that's just a choice. OK. I, I wouldn't even I wouldn't put any book in hardcover because who the hell buys books in hardcover? Uh,
1: right. I, I, if we were talking by ourselves, I would give you that answer. But being that we're on the air, I won't say. Okay. <laughs> um, because the hardcovers are, are stupidly expensive. Well, It is. It is. Uh, I won't say the information's great, but it is kind of highly priced compared to some of your other stuff. Now, yeah. the, the only reason I asked if it was hard was it hardcover because they tried to do it at first as a textbook. Did they try to go that angle, even though they said they were told you to write it down? And that's what Ashgate
0: kind of—that was their model. And it, it, it is in a lot of libraries and stuff like that in hardback. It's that book has really sold a lot. It's 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 uh, it surprises me how many times that book sells.
1: So then, now we you're going forward. So now we go forward. Now the pre-accident investigation. Now, were you did you choose that name? What was the re- well? Let me rephrase that. You chose that name for what reason? What was the purpose behind it? What clicked in your brain that that's what you wanted to do?
0: I thought it had good. Um, it, it, had, it was attractive. The name was attractive, and I thought it would bring in more traditional safety thinkers, and be kind of unoffensive and easy for them to grab hold of. Because even a, the most traditional, hardcore, behavioral-based safety person can get behind the idea of a pre-accident investigation. And it was built around the idea of sort of this idea of, of pre, pre-mortems, which we kind of do in the Department of Energy, especially around like high explosives and stuff. Before you did a big, expensive experiment that you couldn't do many times, you would do a pre-mortem on it. and You'd say, okay, what are all the ways this could fail? And then you would actually dig into those and that that was a technique we were really comfortable with in the DOE. And so I, I, I kind of went with that name because I thought it would be attractive. Well, then right
1: now, well, it is a very attractive name and nobody knew how well this name was going to stick, which this is the fun part. So now we, now we start going a few years down the road and we're not going to get to better questions yet because before better questions occurs, you're still teaching and you're still going out to different organizations. But all of a sudden, the idea for the pre-accident investigation podcast occurs. And, and I look at that because if you go back to your first episode, you're pretty much saying that you were coerced into doing it. And it's not something you really wanted to do. But now we're talking hmm, four, or five, four or five years later almost now. And you're yeah, still five. doing it.
0: Yeah, five. At least five years. Yeah. So that's so that all started with uh, with. Uh, so the book was really getting popular, which, again, was kind of weird for me. And a friend of mine, my friend Jeff Segler, he said, uh, "You ought to." And he's kind of a new media guy. I mean, that's that's what he is. Is a, a new media dude. He says you need a, a YouTube channel. And I said, "Well, I don't want to do a YouTube channel because I don't look that good with a sh- with, without a shirt. <laughs> you don't have to be naked in YouTube." And I said, "Well, who's going to be on YouTube if you have clothes on? I mean, that's that's a waste." And he said, "Well, if you don't do a YouTube channel, you ought to do a podcast." And then he said to me, and you'll appreciate this, Jay. He said, You know, you were in radio a really long time. A podcast will be really simple for you, and you ought to try it. And so I thought, Well, I mean, maybe it'd be kind of fun. And what attracted me to the podcast was the fact that I got to buy a bunch of equipment, a bunch of sound equipment, um, which I don't know why that was attractive to me, but it was really attractive to me. So I ordered a, you know, a. The dream microphone that I always wanted, just in case you're wondering. It's a <laughs> SM7B. Nice. <laughs> that's, that, that's a dream. I think it's a great one. It microphone. is. And then I ordered a little mixer and, uh, and I looked up on the Internet how to do a podcast. And I was blown away. I mean... I was really surprised how easy it was to, to actually do to not to, I don't mean easy to do, but how easy it was to get your podcast up and out to the world. And, um, so I started the podcast and I never imagined, I don't know, like I thought maybe 50 people would listen. Um, and I didn't imagine that it would be, uh, a thing. I mean you are you're
1: being too kind. It's a juggernaut. You have thousands of listeners every day that download your
0: podcast. Yeah, I know, it's weird. And the funny thing is that I started with the interviews and the first interview I did was Martha Costa, who's amazing. Actually, not, it's funny I met with her today. Um and then I got like Tom Kraus on there and and uh it, it's funny because at first it was hard to get people on but then when it got popular Then it was really easy to get people on. And now it's kind of the, it's almost the exact, it's now you have to be really selective because lots of people want to get on and sell stuff. And you don't, I mean, you don't necessarily want to be somebody's advertising thing. So that that was really interesting. And, And what's funny is it started out with just the interviews and I was going to do one a week because you learn in radio that consistency matters. And I knew nothing about podcasting except that I thought, somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes was long enough and that if i was consistent i could probably get people to listen twice and if i could get them to listen twice i might be able to get them to listen three times and so i started doing the podcast and then tanya lagarmo who who was the human performance person really early Chevron, I mean, like maybe the first person in Chevron to start thinking about human performance, she said, why don't you do operational excellence or safety moments? Because we really have a need for those. And so I thought, well, that'd be really easy. So I could do two um, dumps a week. I could do a safety moment and I could do an interview. And that's probably sustainable. And so that's kind of how the podcast started. Do you
1: still feel the same way that you did when you first started as you do now about it? Or has there
0: been change on how you look at it? That's a good question. Um, so I still it's still really fun and it still doesn't feel like a lot of work. So that's good. I mean, that means I'll, I'll continue to do it because if it's fun to do and it's not a lot of work, um, I'll, I'll do it. It's it's also pretty easy to get people on. So that makes it a little easier. And I like it. I, f- I feel I feel like it's something I'll continue to do for a while, as long as it has value. I do think it's interesting in that a lot of people listen to it. And so it, I, I think it is a really, it's doing exactly what I wanted it to do, which is really build a sense of community um, among the safety professionals and reliability professionals really, who are thinking these new ideas. Because at first it was pretty lonely and you would have these ideas and you'd go to an ASSE meeting at the time and you'd be the only person in the room who didn't think that looking at worker behavior for unsafe acts was valuable. And so you needed a place to go where you thought, oh God, there, there are other people that are thinking the same thing I'm thinking and we need to build community with those people. And, and it's, been, it's been pretty helpful. I mean, and so that was my goal. And, and at first I sold advertisements, kind of, I mean, not really. But I had, I had an advertiser or two at first because I, it was a way to buy the equipment. Because I, I just never imagined this would be a thing to invest in. So I thought, well, if I have to buy this, this microphone, which costs, you know, <laughs> I don't know. What does one of these cost? 300 bucks or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll
1: go on the light in. Yes, absolutely.
0: <laughs> no, then, then I need to sell an ad. And then somebody told me, I don't know. I was out someplace and they said, take those ads off. That's, that, uh, that's stupid. And I thought, well, you know, I don't really need to, I mean, I already paid for the $300 microphone. I might as well just take the ads off. So I just took the ads off. And, and in a way, Jay, that's been really interesting because that gives you a certain amount of freedom, too, because I don't really have to make anybody happy. I, you know, and, and some podcasts really make people angry. Like there's a guy in Australia who hates me. <laughs> but I think that's kind of fun. Well, you have to also
1: understand, understand for what you tell people, you're not the most loved individual because of the concepts that you're bringing up. So you yeah. know that
0: well. And it's, they're, they're they're controversial. They're less controversial now than they were 15 years ago. They're even kind of less controversial now than they were five years ago.
1: Oh, absolutely. Now, let me ask you just a strange question. We're going to get to to better questions here in a moment, but if you were to retire tomorrow, do you feel that you would continue with the podcast?
0: Yeah, probably. Does it bring
1: you that much joy?
0: Yeah, it's pretty fun. I like it. (laughs) It's really fun when you get to talk to people. I mean, it's, it's fun. You must like doing it, don't you?
1: I love doing it. I've committed so much time to this. And of course the the radio station, which you know that you're on, we, we re air your podcast. Like it's a, like it's a standard show.
0: Oh, that's good. I think that's good. And more the merrier, man. And I like, it's, I'm amazed. I'm amazed at what, I'm amazed at how much good stuff people have to say. Like almost every time I've talked to a person, I, and I try to just have a conversation, like I don't do pre questions and I don't, I don't call them and rehearse stuff. I basically just, I connect with them and then I hit record. I try to hit record immediately so that even when we just start talking, we're recording. And, and then I just try to have the conversation. I never want to talk about what we're going to talk about beforehand, because then we will have had the whole conversation in preparation to have the conversation. And the second time's not as good. And I'm kind of amazed at just how much, There's just been a ton of really interesting stuff. And I've learned a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton from what people have to say. Well, I think it's funny that you mentioned
1: that because there's been times that we've been on the phone where you're like, don't talk about this to me because we're going to talk about it on the podcast. I know exactly what you mean.
0: Yeah, you don't want you don't want to have the conversation because some of the magic is is just in having the conversation. I mean, the first time you have it, that's kind of when these really fresh kind of green ideas squirt out and then they become really interesting to think about.
1: Absolutely. So right now, we're let's go into 2016 and it's July right now. So you decide that it's going to be the release of pre-accident investigation, better question.
0: Better questions. Yeah.
1: So what are you thinking between 2012 into 2016 that you see the need for better questions?
0: I start to realize that human error is not very interesting. In fact, it's so normal, it's kind of boring and it's never causal. And I start to realize that the most important group that changes in this new view of safety, safety differently, is not the workforce. The guys at the coalface, they kind of know all this stuff. It's leadership. And then I start to realize really organically, I mean, I think I knew this all along, but I never saw it anywhere. And I never really studied it academically. I start to realize that the power in facilitating change is not in the answers. The power in facilitating change is in the questions and that if I can get leaders to ask better questions, then the rest of it, the answer part is really, really, really simple. And so I start to put my emphasis on how leaders ask questions. Maybe a better question is, is or a better statement is, is what leaders ask when they ask those questions. And now I'm at a point, I mean, this is back when that book is written, when I'm relatively convinced that the, the response that leadership has to failure is everything. And what's funny is that in the early stages of human performance, and this is where Tony Machar and I get a little bit crosswise, I would actually suggest that the info stuff and the early, early, early DOE stuff was written towards the focus of fixing the worker. What I started to realize is that what we want to actually put our focus is on actually changing the way leaders lead for resilience. And that's when better questions becomes really an important part of it. And I write better questions mostly out of a desperate need to get people to sort of understand that if they want different answers They have to ask different questions. And that's when sort of I come up with the idea that the enemy of the question is always the answer. And that answers actually do something really, really negative. And that is that answers actually stop inquiry. And the moment we stop inquiry is the moment we stop being resilient.
1: Come back next week for the continuation of Todd Conklin Comes Again, part two on Safety FM. no part of this podcast may be reproduced stored in a retrieval system or transmitted in any form or by any means mechanical electronic recording or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast jay allen
0: safetyfm.com
2: wow how things can change from one week to the next